Shalom, and welcome to Inside Israel News. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. In this podcast, you'll hear detailed and relatively unbiased information about Israeli politics and current events. All right, welcome back to Inside Israel News. It's been a tumultuous few days here uh, in the United States. It's January 2020. For those who might be listening later, uh, a lot going on, a bit distracting. But I am back to talk about what's going on in Israel and the Israeli elections. This episode is going to be a little bit of an aside from the Israeli elections to talk about Israeli Arabs and the uh, Arab-Palestinians and uh, where they stand and, and what's going on there. I'm going to talk more about Israeli parties and that kind of thing in the future, so I think I'll take the opportunity here to talk about the Arab parties in Israel and what they represent and go through some of that news real quick. And we've had some interesting developments there. Now, I've told you that I would uh, inform you about any biases that I have, and that's how this will be relatively unbiased, even though uh, any human being has their own biases, and I am not without mine. So uh, one of my biases is that I am fairly pro-Arab. My congregation of uh, Jews in the United States were Egyptian immigrants, and I am someone who very much appreciates Arab culture and I'll have a lot of my Arab friends and uh, Jewish uh, Mizrahim, people who are, you know, uh, Sephardic or Persian or, or otherwise from the Middle East, uh, tell me that, oh, the, the culture is very primitive and the food's very plain and, you know, there's nothing, nothing to celebrate there. But I love the food. I enjoy fool and Moroccan fish. And uh, I find the culture hospitable uh, and uh, very... Uh, family-oriented, and so, some positives there. So when I lived in Israel, one of the challenges, of course, is that with the conflict that's been going on for so long, there is some uh, enmity uh, between the Israeli Arabs and uh, other Israelis. Obviously, when the War of Independence happened, a large number of Arabs were living within the state of Israel. They were granted their citizenship. Arab women voted in the Middle East for the first time in Israel. And uh, they have uh, political rights just like everyone else there. In fact, they have their own separate courts uh, for family courts and what have you that are under Islamic law. Uh, Of course, the people also have the choice of the secular courts if they don't uh, want to deal with religious courts. uh, They are able to form uh, and organize mosques, build mosques and uh, congregate as they please. And uh, they are self-governing in their own little communities within the state of Israel. They have their own little cities like Um Al-Fam or Rahat. So these are are Israeli citizens who happen to be Arabs. And they uh, often tend to live in their own communities, although some do live in the other larger cities in Israel. And uh, just, you know, some of my experiences, I, I noticed that when we'd be at the checkout line at, uh, at the grocery store, everyone would be in line uh, in the, for Israeli, uh, Jewish Israeli checkout. Uh, but the, the one Arab lady working behind the counter, no one was in line there. Well, my wife and I being Americans, we jump in that line and, uh, of course, get checked out faster because we just didn't care. In any case, one of the the sad things about uh, the situation in Israel is that the Arab Israelis do not really participate in the political system the way that other parties do. If Arab Israeli 
uh, parties were to, say, join the government or what have you, they would definitely benefit their communities. But because of the politics of the situation, uh, these parties generally tend to be pan-Arab and uh, very nationalist, and they refuse to uh, recommend a prime minister or join a coalition or otherwise participate in the system. And as a result, sadly, uh, Israeli Arabs go unrepresented in the political system to a large extent. This is starting to change, and that is a blessing. Now, it's a, a topic for another episode, another time, and I could go into it at great length. But in 2015, the center-left parties broke from the coalition with Netanyahu as part of uh, something of a uh, an attempt engineered by the Obama administration to oust Netanyahu. And part of the way they tried to oust Netanyahu was that they uh, tried to encourage greater Arab-Israeli turnout as well as left-wing Israeli turnout. And this led to a moment where as the election day progressed and it got later in the afternoon, uh, Bibi happened to go, uh, Benjamin Bibi Netanyahu, uh, prime minister, uh, whom we all affectionately call Bibi, uh, Bibi went on on air and said, hey, they're, they're busing Arabs to the polls uh, to, to convince his voters to turn out in greater numbers. And they did. And, and Likud gained some seats as a result of that. So this led to some frustration in the Arab community because it kind of sounded like a, a backhanded or, or bigoted remark uh, in that regard. Obviously, Bibi did apologize for it, but uh, the, the damage was done, you might say. And the relationship between the government of Netanyahu and the Arab community has been uh, kind of uh, on the rocks ever since, let's just say. However, those things began to change recently. Now Israel has made peace with the United Arab Emirates, with Bahrain, with Sudan, with Morocco. A uh, little bit by little bit, Muslim countries and especially Arab countries, are making peace with Israel. And that's changing the politics and the, and the structure of the Middle East, with more Arab countries being concerned about Iran and the threat posed by Iran. They're choosing to side with Israel and the U.S. against Iran more completely. And that's opened some new opportunities. So uh, it's the curious situation then that uh, you have Bibi Netanyahu Recently, campaigning in Umm al-Fam, a Muslim community in northern Israel, where he's plugging for votes and he's discussing the possibility of maybe having an Arab candidate in uh, Likud. And he's asking for the Arabs to vote for him, for his government, citing various reasons uh, that I'll get into in a little bit that uh, he's done good things for that community and uh, hoping to pick up uh, a seat or two from the Arab electorate uh, who make up uh, less than a fifth of, of Israel's population, but they are certainly a significant number. And if they turn out in, in decent numbers, they certainly make an impact in the Knesset. They have a tendency to earn about one in 10 seats in the Knesset, uh, the Arab parties do. So Bibi is trying to tap into that. And that there's a curious thing to see, given the history of the situation that I just described, and obviously the conflict that precedes it. This is a change in the times, and it signals that uh, perhaps in the future, the participation or rather the non-participation of the Arab parties in Israel may be coming to an end, which would be quite a blessing for the people of these Arab communities. Now I'm going to begin talking about Israeli-Arab political parties, and I'm going to begin with Ra'am for reasons that will become clear shortly, because that's the most interesting of them at the moment, uh, what's going on in Israel today. 
Ra'am is an acronym that basically means United Arab List. Uh, it's an Arab Nationalist Party and an Islamist Party. So it is conservative, it is religious, and it is nationalist. Uh, they, again, do not participate in typically in the Israeli government. Uh, they support the two-state solution, uh, pan-Arabism, anti-Zionism, things of that nature. Uh, generally, they are pro-Arab and anti-Jew, and that has been their political rhetoric uh, going back. The current leader of Ra'am is a man named Mansour Abbas, no relation to the president of the Palestinian Authority. However, uh, Abbas is a fairly common uh, Syrian Arabic name. So uh, it's not uncommon for, for that name to be around. Uh, Mansour Abbas recently went on Channel 12, a right-wing associated news station, and talked about how as things progress in these peace talks uh, with the uh, Arab countries, it might be valuable for Arab political parties like his that are socially conservative and nationalist uh, to consider an alliance with the Israeli right. And this is one of the reasons that Bibi is po uh, out campaigning in places like Umm al-Fam. Now, Abbas also noted that when Bibi came to Umm al-Fam, maybe he should be over in Hadera, where uh, the Jews are, <laughs> to campaign over there, uh, which was kind of a, a comical way to, to equip, you know, a way to, to kind of push back at Bibi. Uh, which is it's kind of a funny thing for him to say. In any case, uh, Mansour Abbas has been working not too closely, but more closely than uh, Arab leaders have in the past with Netanyahu's government on issues that impact the Arab-Israeli community. Now, there are a number of issues that relate to these communities as uh, the Arab population has a tendency to be on the poorer side. There's a lot of crime in these communities and uh, there are problems with organized crime and a great deal of violence, uh, violent organized crime fights, battles, turf wars, things of that nature. So there's been some work uh, between Abbas and Netanyahu on these kinds of issues. Obviously, uh, the, the Israeli government wants to be able to address these issues, but they are best addressed through the mechanism of working with the Arab communities themselves rather than, say, Netanyahu himself just coming down with a, some kind of heavy-handed response. So they, they want a, a more nuanced approach that will actually address some of the underlying issues. Uh, the, the poverty and uh, economic social problems in these communities are not new to Israel. When Israel was founded, of course, large numbers of Jewish uh, people gathered to Israel from all the four corners of the world, but uh, about half of them are what we call Ashkenazic Jews from Europe, and the other half are what we call Mizrahim, or uh, those uh, who are religious, maybe uh, Sephardic, members of the uh, one-time uh, Spanish tradition of Judaism, that uh, when the Spanish cast out the Jews from uh, Spain, they spread all over the North Africa and uh, the, the Middle East, and that's why that tradition is called Sephardic or Sfad uh, is uh, how we say Spain in, in Hebrew. So this is a, um, a problem that Jews dealt with where you have this large number of people who were relatively well-educated and mercantile and uh, hardworking and bright within Arab culture. But when they were thrown in with a whole bunch of European Jews, and, and let's not... Let's not joke here. Ashkenazic Jews are people known for very high IQs, high productivity, great education. These are, these are people that are at the, the very cream. They are the cream of, of European society, uh, 
a lot of doctors, a lot of uh, scientists and that kind of thing. And they're thrown in with these uh, Jews from the Middle East. And there was a lot of struggle there because there were a lot of cultural differences. And um, it was a struggle for Jews in Israel to learn to bridge these kinds of divides and learn to live together. And that's uh, I'd like to say progressing. Obviously, nothing is perfect, but it's progressing. And slowly but surely, those divisions are starting to uh, blur and uh, Israel is slowly becoming more of a unified country. In fact, uh, the, the Russian Jews who moved in after the end of the Cold War uh, feel a little bit more isolated. And Beta Yisrael, the, uh, the Ethiopian Jews who have more recently moved to Israel, are... Uh, dealing with this kind of inclusion issue of, of trying to build up the society and, and bring everyone in uh, so that there are no groups that are kind of segregated or separated out. The, the Mizrahim and, and the Sephardim are kind of more integrated now, and, and that's working through that. Now, because of their political isolation and social isolation, to a large extent, those issues have not been addressed in the Arab community. Uh, the Arab community does not uh, or has not prospered to the degree that they could in the Israeli economy because they are uh, kind of culturally separated and uh, they haven't adopted any of the uh, sort of cultural fusion in Israel, the, the work ethic, uh, some of the more European ways of thinking about productivity and entrepreneurship, uh, and that has uh, definitely stunted their ability to prosper in Israel. Now, Abbas has been working with Bibi on the crime issues and trying to improve relations with the Arab community, and there's been some, uh, some positive steps taken. And there's a lot of work left to do, but this kind of explains where Mansour Abbas is when it comes to uh, his work with Bibi and why in the world, <laughs> what, what in the world is he thinking, Bibi Netanyahu going to Umm al-Fam and asking for votes from Arabs uh, for an Israeli, a right-wing Israeli government. Uh, and as I talk about some of the other Arab parties, you'll begin to see some of the divisions that are growing in the Arab community in Israel amongst their own political interests that are also somewhat underlying this uh, change in direction. All right, on to the next party. Uh, as I describe the differences between these parties, it, it is somewhat complicated in a multi-party proportional system to describe some of the very, what might seem to us, minute nuanced differences of opinion that might lead to political parties that agree on 65% of policy issues, let's say, to be very, very different from one another, very distinct and, uh, you know, offended, let's say, that you might think they'd be together in, in one big tent. Uh, this sort of reminds me of the, the skit in uh, Monty Python's Life of Brian, where we're talking about the Judean People's Front versus the Popular Front for Judea. Uh, you know, he's over there, splitter, <laughs> because there's... Uh, there's uh, separations here that are very important to the people involved. But when you're looking at them from afar, you're like, well, this is a nationalist party and that's a nationalist party. Why don't they, why aren't they together? Well, uh, they're very different uh, nationalist parties. So Ta'al is a different nationalist party because it is secular. And uh, it's not being Islamic or as um, uh, religious changes the nature of the politics that it preaches. And so Ta'al represents a different segment of Arab population that is more secular, not religious leaning, uh, somewhat socially conservative, but also 
uh, very nationalist. So, you know, you sit there, well, Ram's nationalist and Tal's nationalist, but they are separated by a religious divide, which to the people on the ground, to the people on the street in Omafam, in Rahat, in these Arab neighborhoods, this is a big, big distinction. But again, looking at it from the outside, we're sitting here looking at, well, nationalist, nationalist, what's, what's the issue here? And it's like, well, we're religious and we're not. That's a big deal. And so this is a, a different party that represents it as it presents itself more big tent, uh, more secularist, but still part of the pan-Arab nationalist front of uh, supporting the two-state solution, uh, being against Israel and Zionism and those kinds of things. And so that's where uh, that divide uh, progresses. And so while the two parties look a lot alike on paper, they're very different and uh, they have different constituencies. So Ta'al's party leader, Ahmad Tibi, is much more uh, nationalist, much more offensive to Israel. He is certainly not the one who's going to be going and sitting down with Bibi or going on right-wing Israeli news channels and talking about the, uh, you know, perish the thought that Arabs and Israelis should sit down and have anything to do with one another. Uh, so this is uh, a big difference there between the two parties. They did once run as a joint list together as one party, and uh, that allowed TB to retain his seat. But uh, they they often have been at odds with one another over their particular approach to politics. Now, at one point, um, because of an Israeli operation in the Gaza Strip, uh, TB and his statements were very anti-Israel, and as a result... The Israeli Elections Committee tried to ban Ta'al from the election on the grounds that it was uh, militant and seditious and and, uh, dangerous to Israeli society. Now, Israel is not the United States and freedom of speech only goes so far in a country in that kind of situation. And so when there are Jewish parties that are ultra nationalist and start rising up and let's just, you know, let's let's kill the Arabs and take the land and this kind of thing. um, When people try to say those kinds of things, and and there are a handful of very small and marginal number of Israelis who advocate those kinds of things. There's, you know, a black sheep in every family. We, we get a few, uh, I'll say, marginal fruitcakes in, uh, in our community too. But when parties arise like that, uh, Israel does not permit them to run for office because uh, we don't allow hateful or bigoted parties to seek office. So that was the intent behind removing Ta'al from uh, the election. The Supreme Court overturned the election committee's decision to ban them from the ballot basically on what we would in the United States call First Amendment grounds, but uh, freedom of speech, right to assembly, that uh, these people who vote for Ta'al have a right to vote for Ta'al and and for it to participate in the political system uh, and that uh, the nasty or or militant comments that were coming from TB and and his uh, other party members were not sufficient to warrant their removal from the ballot. And so I want to just take a moment there to to look at the Israeli system and say that Israelis are policing Jews and Jewish thought uh, on the side of of militancy or, or any kind of bigotry much more judiciously and with greater verve and and vigor than the the policing of arab 
policy. So basically, these Arab parties can go and say everything, anything they want, you know, murder the Israelis, uh, you know, it's okay to fire rockets at civilians and, and this kind of thing. And uh, Israel will allow them to continue to stand for office and that kind of thing. Whereas if Jewish Israelis stand up and say, uh, let's kill people or, or hate this person or this group of people are evil, uh, those parties are banned from the ballot. So that's an important thing to understand uh, about Israel and Israeli politics that, uh, again, very different from over here in the U.S., generally people who advocate for uh, really nasty militant situations are, are bigoted or what have you, tend to be on the outside, on the fringe of American politics, and those people generally don't tend to get into office. So as a result, we don't generally have to have laws over here forbidding certain political parties or, or groups from uh, seeking office. Although we do identify groups as terrorist or uh, as being violent, and, and so that would certainly be a, a warning if anyone was thinking of voting for them. Right, so we've covered the uh, religious and non-religious right-wing parties, nationalist uh, parties uh, among the Israeli Arabs. Now let's move over to the left-wing parties and talk about them. Uh, the first of these being Balad. Balad is a party that's been uh, an Arab party for quite some time. It's generally been the larger of the Israeli Arab parties. It is leftist, um, pan-Arabist, but not nationalistic like uh, the other two parties. It is uh, not especially religious, but might be viewed as being a little bit more the conservative left than uh, radical in that regard. Balad is a, an Arab party that spends a lot of time talking about uh, serving the democratic interests of all the people of Israel, not just the Jewish people, and uh, of course they advocate for things like the two-state solution, Israel withdrawing from uh, the so-called occupied territories, that, as they might say, and uh, allowing refugees to return, which would dilute uh, Israel's Jewish population, things of that nature. Uh, that's, that's Balad for you in a nutshell. Hadash is the next party. Hadash means uh, new in is in Hebrew, which is kind of a clever name uh, for this political party, originally envisioned as a Jewish and Arab party. Uh, Hadash lost its Jewish members and became what is now basically and essentially the Arab Communist Party. Uh, this is the party that celebrates transgender rights and is all in favor of the LGBTQ community and that sort of thing. And they are part of the pan-socialist, pan-leftist uh, movement as well well as being Arab and anti-Zionist and so on and so forth. So you can imagine that more conservative Arabs, who are especially Islamist, might look to this party and uh, kind of scratch their head, like, what are these people thinking? What planet are they from? Uh, and so again, uh, while some of these differences may look nuanced to us or, or minor over here, you know, the Judean People's Front versus the People's Front of Judea, uh, no, they, this, this makes a big difference to them because these are the kinds of political issues that will definitely uh, draw a certain kind of constituent and drive away another kind of constituent. And again, in a multi-party proportional system, you're not forced, say, to vote for a more conservative political party if you are more uh, communist, uh, neither if you are not communist, if you're more uh, religious or nationalistic or uh, that sort of thing, you're not required to vote for the left-wing party either. So this is, uh, this is Hadash for you. And this 
sort of underscores the differences, the, the break that's starting to happen in the Arab community. The more nationalist side, especially like Ra'am, the more Islamist side, is taking a look at the world from a point of view that as Sunni Muslims, threatened by the Shiite movement in Iran, threatened by the Iranian effort to take over the leadership of Islam and the pan-Arab movement, if you will, uh, they are a little bit more inclined, being nationalist and, and Arab, to work with the Israelis because, as these Arab governments are making peace with Israel now, uh, this is again part of this idea that Jews and Arabs are part of an Abrahamic alliance that uh, has a, a higher goal uh, that, that transcends these kinds of conflict issues where we want to, they want to work with us to defend against uh, Iran. Whereas if you look at parties like Hadash and Balad, they're a little bit more uh, left-leaning, more pan-communist. Uh, they're not as interested in nationalism, not, an not at all interested in religion. And so those kinds of issues don't play with them um, as much as they play for uh, nationalist parties. And so there's this little bit of a divide growing between the two of them, that the Arab-Israeli left is kind of uh, sticking with this uh, anti-Israel um, and, you know, peace, love, and, and democratic and transgender rights kind of direction, whereas you have the uh, more nationalist parties, more pan-Arabist, more Islamist parties thinking, hey, you know, we could work together with the Israeli right. We do have a lot in common with them on social issues, on the needs of our community with the crime and, and economic issues and that kind of thing, just like our Arab neighbors in the UAE and Bahrain and so on and so forth, who are um, choosing sides with Israel against uh, the Iranians. All right, finally bringing them all together um, in 2014 and heading into 2015, uh, largely led by Yair, Yair Lapid, there was a lot of uh, reforms. There were, there were a number of reforms made to the Israeli electoral system, one of which was raising the electoral threshold. This was being discussed when I volunteered in the Knesset and everyone had an opinion on it. But Generally, slowly but surely, uh, among Kadima, Likud, and several other parties, a consensus was sort of forming around this idea of raising the threshold and um, trying to uh, sort of push Israelis to vote for larger political parties, to look beyond these little nuances that we've just been talking about among political parties and look to the bigger ones, vote more labor, vote more Likud for these larger parties so that the larger parties would have more seats and be more ab better able to form governments. Now, for these Arab parties that are earning one, two, if they're fortunate, three seats in the Knesset, uh, far below the new threshold, which was raised from 2% to uh, 325 three and a quarter percent, uh, where it stands now, uh, these, this would have eliminated all of them from the uh, from the Knesset. They, they would have no seats whatsoever. Uh, they'd all vote for their particular nuanced interests and there would be no Arab representatives in the Knesset as a result. So the Arab parties all got together and formed what they call joint list. And that's when you hear me talking about polls for joint list. They, all four of these came together and they dole out the seats. Let's say first seat to Ram, second seat to Balad, third seat to Hadash, so on and so forth. And they figure out their... Um, their list 
so that they run as one body, even though they are four separate political parties. And as I've just discussed, they have very different political views. Uh, Joint list is polling around 12, 13 seats, uh, again, about 10 percent of the population. How much of that uh, could be drawn off to Likud or other political parties is really not clear probably not much uh this idea of the the two sides working together is is just just in its infancy (laughs) maybe maybe let's just say the uh, the sperm has met the egg rather than the idea that we're going to have this nascence this this birth of uh arab israeli and uh, jewish israeli unity and peace love and all of that sort of thing uh, but the very beginning, the the very, very first seeds have been planted, and, and maybe that will grow and come to fruition one day. Right, so now let's shift gears and talk about some interesting polls of the Arab Palestinians, or the people who call themselves the Palestinians, as there's never really been a nation called that before. Uh, that's a, a long discussion for another time. In any case, the Arabs living in the Gaza Strip and also in what we call Judea and Samaria— uh, or the uh, Shomron and Yehuda, uh, but uh, was often called by the international press the West Bank. Uh, there, there is no West Bank in truth, but uh, there is. Uh, this is what uh, you'll hear it called if if you go on the news and they, they'll talk about you know this happened in the West Bank. Well, that happened in either uh, the Shomron, which is uh, Samaria, the northern part, uh, the, the region north of Jerusalem, or Yehuda, which is Jerusalem and south. And uh, again, that mountainous region is, and the, the Jordan Valley are called uh, the West Bank by the international media. In any case, the Palestinian Arabs living there are deeply dissatisfied with their government, according to recent telephone polls and uh, personal interview polls. This uh, shows that uh, Mahmoud Abbas, who is the president of the Palestinian Authority, is extremely unpopular, and uh, there are a number of power struggles going on in his Fatah party or organization that are... Uh, aimed at who's going to succeed him, and that's that's been somewhat troublesome. So I'll go into a little bit more depth there, and obviously the role played by Hamas, the other terrorist organization in the Palestinian Authority, Fatah and, and Hamas are, are long known, you know, decades old terror organizations, uh, with one being backed by Iran, Hamas being backed by Iran, and historically Fatah has been backed more by the, the Arab countries. Of course, now that they're making peace with Israel, Arab countries are turning their back on the uh, now more increasingly Iranian-aligned Palestinian terrorist organizations, and that is going to t- have a, a what impact we don't know on uh, how things uh, proceed there. So I'll talk a little bit about the polls and some of the numbers there, and we'll find out what they're thinking and uh, what the prospects are for any kind of election or, or change of leadership on that side of the line. So stay tuned. Now we have some fascinating polls from the other side of the uh, so-called Arab-Israeli conflict, uh, polls of Palestinians. And what are they thinking? Well, uh, the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research recently put out a poll uh, that they uh, published a margin of error of 3%, but uh, it is... The results are fascinating, so I wanted to go into them and talk a little bit about uh, what's going on on the other side of the security fence. Apparently, some three-quarters of Palestinians want new elections, and they want those new elections held soon. Interestingly, 
Elections were held in the Palestinian territories in 2005, shortly after the Gaza withdrawal. The Gaza withdrawal was Israel's last major land for peace initiative. A uh, number of Israeli residents who lived just within the the Gaza Strip, the little strip of land uh, between Israel and the Mediterranean next to the Sinai, used to belong to Egypt but was taken by Israel during uh, the Six-Day War in 1967. And uh, during the peace negotiations with Egypt, Egypt did not want it back. So that territory uh, is technically under Israeli sovereignty, if you will, but it is governed by the Palestinian Authority, or at least it was. So we'll get there. In 2005, uh, after that withdrawal, uh, the is Palestinians held elections. Uh, when I say elections, uh, we've, we've had to note elections are not democracy, and democracy is not encapsulated entirely in elections. The, the people who live in these regions do not have freedom of speech. They do not have freedom of the press. They do not have freedom of religion. Uh, they do not have freedom to move, you know, freedom of movement. They are governed by uh, dictators, uh, various dictators who control their, their behavior and what they are and are not allowed to do. So how can you have a really truly free election under such circumstances is uh, questionable. In any case, they had this election in 2005 and Mahmoud Abbas was elected president. He is the leader of the Fatah movement. He succeeded Yasser Arafat, who had died earlier that year. Uh, Abbas was a, a longtime lieutenant of Arafat's. And uh, the parliament, the Palestinian parliament that was created uh, in the parliamentary elections, Hamas, the terrorist organization known for being even more militant than Fatah and for being uh, backed by Iran, they gained a majority in parliament. So there's this uneasiness in the Palestinian leadership. Well, uh, there was the rocket attacks in 2006 where uh, from the Gaza Strip and also from Lebanon, Iranian-backed terrorist groups, Hamas and Hezbollah, bombarded Israel with uh, rockets and missiles. This led to a number of security operations and to a new UN mandate in Hezbollah territory in southern Lebanon. I won't go into that in too much detail. Uh, it is a conflict worth looking at if you're interested in Israeli history. But the net result was uh, relatively inconclusive. Ultimately, Israel developed defense systems against these rockets, and uh, it led to a number of Arab countries kind of clamping down on Lebanon uh, and uh, along with the UN force. And since that time, Hezbollah has had a lot less freedom of movement in Lebanon. So it, it led to a lot of change in Lebanon uh, and uh, a lot of conflict there. Uh, but it has not, that conflict has not resumed since. In any case, in 2007, Fatah and Hamas stopped getting along. And Hamas launched a coup in the Gaza Strip and took over direct control of the territory. So uh, Fatah had sort of a counter coup, if you will, and assumed more direct control in the uh, in the Shomron and, and Yehuda, uh, the, what the, the international press calls the West Bank. And so this is where they stand. Obviously, no new elections have been held, even though Abbas promised elections in 2009 and said that he would not stand for re-election. Well, as you can tell, 15 years after he was elected president, there are no new elections. He has not been re-elected. Uh, there have been no elections for uh, the parliament, and uh, at this point, <clears throat> it's it's a curiosity to see why they they even maintain the pretense of democracy there. 
Uh, at this point, and I, I should note, uh, talking about the lack of freedom in these territories, about one in five Palestinians is employed in the security forces, police, paramilitary, or terrorist organizations. So literally, one in five is employed in oppressing the other four and maintaining uh, the security apparatus. That's a very curious number given that in, in East Germany, which is usually cited as one of those great uh, examples of tyranny, one in six people was employed in spying on the other five. So they're, they're, the, the security state in the Palestinian territories is even more oppressive, even more restrictive than that of East Germany. So let's go into the, the rest of the poll real quick. Uh, two-thirds of Palestinians want uh, Mahmoud Abbas to resign. They don't want him to be president anymore. 30% continue to support him. Uh, 69% said that they were willing to vote or eager to vote uh, if an election were held. Uh, but a majority, 52%, said they did not believe fair elections could be held under these circumstances. Uh, as I just said, I mean, that no joke, really. Uh, if you don't have freedom of the press and, and freedom of speech, how are you going to have a free and fair election when no one can go out and, and pass around pamphlets for anyone in the Gaza Strip except for Hamas? If elections were held throughout the Palestinian territories, at this point, uh, let's say a head-to-head -head between Ismail Haniyeh, the leader of the Hamas Iranian-backed terrorist group, and uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the head of Fatah, the, the more Arab-backed terrorist group, the, the poll would come out this way. The Haniyeh would win about 52% to 39% against Abbas. Now, if uh, Fatah was led by Marwan Barghouti, who is another uh, leader of the Fatah terrorist organization from the past, uh, he would garner 61% of the vote. Barghouti is known for leading the first and later the second intifadas, the uprisings against Israel. Uh, he has been arrested by the Israelis and is currently sitting in an Israeli prison serving five life sentences for uh, leading various suicide bomber attacks and terrorism in Israel in the two conflicts, especially the second uh, intifada in 2000-2001. But uh, Barghouti is very popular with the Palestinians, so he would win an election if he were running. Interestingly, the current prime minister of the Palestinian Authority, who works under Abbas, a uh, member of the Fatah movement, uh, Mohammed Shtey, if he were to run, uh, he and Hania would tie at about 47% each. Now, that's actually an increase in popularity for Shtey, so good for him. He's more popular with everyone, uh, a little bit more popular, so that he can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Hania uh, in uh, elections if they are ever held. 76% uh, of Palestinians believe that were Hamas to win the elections, Fatah would not accept the results, which means, of course, the situation uh, would remain as it is with the two camps in, divided between the two territories. Uh, a further 58% believe that Hamas would not accept election results if Fatah wins. 44% of Palestinians believe they should resume peace negotiations, although a large number do not expect a President Joe Biden to abandon the Trump peace plan. But 49% of Palestinians oppose resumption of peace talks under any circumstances. So there are polls uh, in Israel and in the Palestinian territories. So you are up to date with what a lot of people are thinking at the moment for what it's worth. Well, that's another episode concluded. If you are interested in learning more about the program, visit InsideIsrael.News. If you came from InsideIsrael.News, uh, definitely check out the other articles on the website and uh, look for 
more information, uh, contact me with feedback. If you think this is great, if you think it's terrible, I'm right about this, wrong about that, uh, definitely love to hear from you. Until next time, goodbye. Lehitrot. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.